Welcome everyone to Seek Go Create. This is your host, Tim Winders. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the new world of entrepreneurship and just a lot of things related to that. I, I, I love talking about growth in business. I think most of you know that I'm a strategic coach for business owners and leaders. And today's all about that conversation. And I've got someone who's got background in mergers and acquisitions and people exiting businesses. So be focused on that. But we're going to get a lot of lessons from just business and entrepreneurship in general. Before I do that, uh, I want to just do a quick reminder to everyone. I, your host, Tim Winders, has, depending on when you're listening to this, I've just released my um, my first novel, which is a very interesting venture for me. And it is a uh, novel I'm titling kind of a leadership or a business novel, but it's kind of really in the inspirational novel uh, area and I'm getting some great feedback on it. So if you have not checked it out, go check out my novel at timwinders.com forward slash book, timwinders.com forward slash book, get a copy, get gifts, get it for everyone and uh, check it out and let me know what you think about it. Thanks for doing that. So let's go ahead and get started today. We have Stuart Robles as our guest and he's got one of these huge long uh, bios and intros with all types of uh, credentials. I'm gonna do a short one and we're gonna dive right into the conversation. He is a partner at Briggs Capital, a mid-market mergers and acquisitions firm, and he's the co-author of the book, The New World of Entrepreneurship, which I've done a quick scan and read about half of it here in the last few days. So welcome, Stuart, to Seek, Go, Create. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, it's great to be here. We're going to have a fun conversation. My first question I'm going to ask you, uh, we bump into each other. I want to know more about you. And I say, what do you do? What do you tell people when they ask what you do? Um, short answer, a former entrepreneur, a business owner that is now working with business owners as a mergers and acquisitions advisor, helping them in their exit strategy, uh, selling their business. Oh, so okay. I work so with, uh, yeah. I work with, with buyers. business owners. Correct. Yeah, buyers and sellers. Now, the first thing that jumped out at me when you said that, though, is you said you're a former entrepreneur. Is that even possible? Can you get that out of your blood? Because I believe once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Am I wrong about that? Can you really be a former entrepreneur? We've, we've, had, we've refined it that way at Briggs. We're all former entrepreneurs, but we'll jump in at any moment. Again, at a good opportunity and... Uh, the group has been around for about 25 years. I'm, I'm the youngest one in the group, and uh, I've been around for about five years with the firm. But uh, you know, partners jump in and out because they, they they go into companies or they or they go into you know manage organizations or start a new company. So uh, the former entrepreneur is you know we, we've done it before, and uh, you know we've been on the side of having to make payroll you know every month and uh, and suffering you know the you know having to grow businesses and all the you know things that are are not covered in podcasts like these about the you know the hard part you know in press and in things like that everybody covers the success but it's always a really hard road to get there that's usually not covered so you know we we, we say that the former but we'll just, you know you never stop being an entrepreneur yeah that's so. what i thought too i'm glad you kind of brought up that issue that you know we do kind of glorify either the super, super good or the super, super bad. And sometimes we don't really get get involved. I mean, even here, we don't have time for it in other places with kind of the messy middle, the day-to-day -day stuff, the grind and all of that. And um, which, you know, I think that a lot of people fail to recognize just the amount of time, energy, and effort that goes into successful ventures. Before we get too much further though, um, I just had this thought, uh, sometimes I do this, sometimes I don't, but when we use words like entrepreneur, I like to just get people's take on how they define it. You know, that's a big word. I think we throw it around a lot in our culture and society. Sometimes we glorify it. Sometimes we vilify it. It just depends. But how do you, and, and it doesn't have to be formal or technical, but just give me some thoughts on what an entrepreneur really is in today's world. We're recording this in 2022. Uh, you know, this is the first time I think of the answer, but the way you asked it, uh, serial entrepreneur, you know, the one that 
we all know that word, the serial entrepreneur, uh, really should become entrepreneur. I think entrepreneur is once you've already done one business and you don't do the next one. Because you can do one business or land in it, right? Or inherit it, and you're not necessarily an entrepreneur or business owner. You are a go-getter, you, you carve your own future and your destiny, which is the definition of an, of an entrepreneur in a sense that really long word, it kind of like starts with, uh, I, I, I grew up in, uh, I was talking about Miami, so I speak Spanish, right? But emprendedor is that you you start something, you you, uh, you enterprise into something new. It's, it's actually one of those few words in Spanish that has a better definition uh, than in English, because English is a better language. That's why it's so good for business and everything, but that's another story. But yeah, I think it should be changed and it should be the person that, uh, has done at least one business already. That should be an entrepreneur. Um, yeah, yeah. That's good. We work a lot and, with, with yeah, yeah. No, we work with a lot with serial entrepreneurs. You know, they sell one company, took them 15 years to build it. And then when they jump back into the game after a three year, two year non-compete with their buyer, they just throw their hat back in the ring and they will create a company the same size as the first one they did in two and a half, three years because of doing it again, knowing what we know now and that type of thing. When they go and they go and they go and they, and, you know, they do five of those across yeah. their career and lifetime. Yeah. There was a period of time where I, I was a little concerned about my mindset. I was, and maybe that term serial, someone introduced me recently as a serial entrepreneur and we were joking, is it serial, C-E-R-E-A-L, or is it S-E, anyway, sorry, bad, bad joke there, but uh, we, we like, we can laugh about this kind of stuff, but, um, and, and you know what I was concerned about, uh, Stuart, I was bothered that maybe my attention span, that I just didn't want to stick with something long, that I just wanted to keep starting it, and, um, uh, you know, I'm kind of at an age where I, I'm, I'm not in that mode anymore. But do you ever notice that some entrepreneurs, they just, they, this goes a little negative, but I'm just, I want to bring it up that maybe it's just because they don't stay with something long. They just want to keep jumping from one thing to the next to the next and don't ever allow things to mature like they really need to. It's really funny you say that. And I think we just added something else to the word and what the definition should be. But, uh, you know, I had a, we had a client recently. And he was explaining why he's selling because that's what the buyers ask for. Well, why are you selling? He says, well, I'm an entrepreneur and I already got the business to where I can. Uh, somebody else needs to, to bring in corporate governance to, you know, hire better people that has more experience. I, I need to go out and create something else. It's my third company I create. Uh, that's why I'm selling. And, and, and they're not happy with the answer. Kind of like, oh, there's got to be something behind that. And so nobody's ever happy with the middle right the good the bad we're talking about but uh that, that could be the one it's 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 uh it's the entrepreneur is the one that that can start it get it going uh get it to a level where it's gone past uh, and you've covered this probably extensively and, and and your audience also you know the valley of death you know that all those stages that a, that a, a new company a new business has but they they the entrepreneur is disorganized they're always they're the ones that are selling you know they're, they're always selling and collecting, selling and collecting, right? That's really the role and maybe hiring a few people and firing. But, um, you know, they get to a point and they got to sell, they got to exit and they got to go somewhere else. If they're not able to exit, they're just going to you know, start a new business and figure out, give it to some employee uh, to run it. But, but that's really, yeah, they really touch upon that. You, you've done a, I saw your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> you are a serial entrepreneur, so uh, uh, it might be attention span, yeah. But, but that's that's the role these these folks play in the economy. Yeah, it could be. You know, one of the things that you and I talked about briefly, and I just I want to go ahead and bring it into the conversation now, the book that uh, you and Rod, your partner, wrote, The New World of Entrepreneurship. You know, one of the things that I found that's that's created more patience in me is doing is writing <laughs> uh, because you, you it takes a different muscle. You know, it's one thing to just kind of throw things around and do business and all that. But writing's kind of tough. Tell me about uh, this book. What was the catalyst for the new the new world? And I'm, I'm emphasizing that. And I've got more questions about that in a little while, too. The new world of entrepreneurship. Talk about that. OK, uh... Well, the first thing is, oh, my God, writing a book. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially me. I mean, you know, Rod's done 
I co-author, he's done three, this is his third. He was nice enough to invite me to be his co-author. And at one point said, if you don't sit down and start writing your part, you know, I'm just going to, uh, you know. So I had to go and, and seclude myself for you know, two weeks, uh, you know, at, at a family beach house. Uh, and, uh, you know, where I grew up and I used to go and I just had to hide and not do anything because I just had never written a book. It's so hard, you know, so you have to sit down and write. I've done a bunch of articles and things. Anyways, but what a challenge. What a, what a hard thing to do. It gives you a new world of discipline. Once you're done with it, you're like, wow. And uh, maybe I can do it again, but then you're like, ah. but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's writing a book. So it's a real challenge. And I think uh, in this world where more people are writing books, I think that's, you know, most of us have stopped placing such a high price tag on the value, of, but putting all that into, you know, 200, 300 pages of, of content is, is really a lot of work. And it's very valuable. No wonder, and, you know, and should be appreciated. I think but, but it was really tough with, uh, with, you know, the thesis of the book, um, it's our take, Rod and I's, and our experience of, you know, he's got, you know, 40 years of experience in the business. I've had 15, 20 as an entrepreneur and about five as an investment banker, M&A, mergers and acquisitions advisor. But it's our take on the world we live in and the stuff we do, but post-pandemic. And it's the equivalent of now everybody can work from home or, you know, finally the e-commerce possibility of, you know, worldwide business and things like that that had been building up for 20 years since the advent of you know late 90s of the, the dot-com roaring dot-com uh, era it really really the lockdown made everybody have to do it digitally you know? and now you know, it's really the barriers to entry to entrepreneurship are so much lower than they already were and the access to capital is so much easier and it's global and you can you can reach anywhere and that's really what it is the, the pandemic made it so much made it a new world of entrepreneurship. And, and then we talk about that in the book, different, the new possibilities, the new resources that, that, that individual folks that have never enterprised emprendido uh, have at their disposal in this new era. Sure. Yeah. So, the, so the new world is really related to those things that occurred with what we'll call this catalytic event, the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we'd like to think it maybe it was a black swan event. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But, but what, what do you think, and this is very speculative and may not even worth having a lot of conversation about, but we were already moving in the direction. I mean, listen, I was a nomad (laughs) and digital person, uh, in our RV a few, a few years. And my wife and I've been traveling since 2013. We've been full-time travelers. But again, I don't know that everyone was in that mode. So what, um, I mean, you mentioned a few things, but I mean, what would have happened without all that went on with the pandemic? We were already heading down that path, weren't we? Yeah, we already were. But, you know, I'll tell you, I, I've been a nomad. Uh, you know, I've worked from my phone since, uh, you know, since the first Blackberries and I never had a Whenever it was at an office and, uh, you know, overseas a lot of the time. This has been since 2006. I've been doing the work wherever I, wherever I have a connection. But everybody always, up until the pandemic, ah, Stuart, you know, you're, you're, you're never working because you never go to an office and everything. Really tough to, for people to understand that they think that people that are nomads before, uh, are lazy or vacationing or have a trust fund that are not worth it. They really, they didn't. And uh, my business partners, you know, they they they, uh, they, they could not understand that uh, you know, I was the only one remote from the team. They're all based in Boston, right? And they all go to an office. They used to go to an office. They don't go anymore. But they could not fathom the fact that I was working from home in Austin, Texas. When I was living in Austin. I lived there for 15 years. Uh, now I'm in Miami, like I told you, where I was born. But I hadn't been back for about 30 years, living at least. But uh, yeah, everybody thought that they had no idea. And now everybody's completely okay with with, uh, with me being anywhere. It really changed. Yeah. Do you uh, see? So, do you yeah. see any? Um, I mean, I, I I keep up on reading, and I've you know some of my clients. We had this conversation about uh, every 30, 60 days for the last two two plus years. Is you know when do we come back in the office? Do we stay hybrid? Do we do this? Do we do that? And and I do notice some organizations, probably the larger corporate, I don't know about smaller, I'm just going to kind of ask this, your opinion on this or what you're seeing. Uh, how much will there be an effort to go back to 
pre-early 2020, uh, you know, work environments, cultures, business, things like that, versus, you know, the cat's out of the bag and people people are working from home and to keep and retain people, you've got to let them be flexible and all that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm curious, I do see some companies say, we're bringing people back in. A lot of them happen to be in finance and things like that, uh, you know, in the large cities. What are your thoughts on that? I think that uh, we talked a lot about that at the beginning of the pandemic. Rod, my co-author, he's a, he's a big, you know, he goes on interviews all the time and he's, he's very used to radio and everything. And he would be really talking about all the lazy people that don't want to work that were taking advantage of the pandemic. And that, you know, you touch a lot on, on the U.S., you know, uh, how the country was built, you know, and that it was built on hard work, you know, and the, but there's been that there's a class of uh, I want to call them freeloaders or anything because they they do work but uh you know they're the same ones that were not working hard in the office or the ones that were not doing anything at home doing pilates in the middle of the day instead of you know and um companies will find the they will always find the ones that are the most productive and they're gonna be able to nurture them now better because a lot of them like myself since i was younger could not fit in an office environment even though i was a i want to call it that but i was a I did produce a lot, you know, in, in terms of, you know, I was very active and, and I was always interested in new things. And uh, so I would bring new things to the company and wherever I would work before I was you know, a business owner, but, but I just couldn't fit in the office uh, you know, environment. And uh, I think, you know, everybody will find their way. There's going to be companies that are going to be very successful with the hybrid model. And uh, there's going to be others that you know, will have to bring people back just to make sure that they're, the ones that don't want to work will always find the water cooler and just spend the whole day there, you know, at the office. So, so I think it's just the same as everything. It's always, it's life is always the same old, same old that, you know, somebody could be remote, somebody could be at the office, but there's going to be the hard workers and there's, those are going to be the ones that are going to be successful in life. And uh, the ones that, you know, just uh, you know, passing by, which is fine. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I was thinking about earlier is that, you know, what a lot of people don't recognize, you probably see this too, but because I've always worked, you know, from a home office or something like that, or at least most of my business career, um, I probably work more than I should, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I, I never shut down. You know, if I actually went into an office, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a day, it would be nice to kind of leave it and go, oh, now I can kind of relax. But no, I mean, I've, you know, 9 p.m. last night, I had a laptop out working on things and early this morning. And I'm sure you're the same. So I love uh, that's great what you said. It's like people that are going to work hard are going to work hard wherever. <laughs> people that are going to be lazy and slough off, they're probably going to do that wherever. It kind of doesn't matter. So uh, so that's good. Before we, I don't want to spend a lot of time just with, you know, pandemic and things like that. But I know you guys, I think I read y'all work with at least a thousand clients or 450 or something like that, large numbers. And we'll talk more about that later when we kind of go into some things that you do with your business. But I know you get to observe quite a bit. And so before we leave this event that we've all experienced for two plus years, and let's hope we're getting into, uh, you know, all being okay with, uh, you know, virus and things like that. What are some big lessons that you have gathered um, positively that owners of businesses, organizations have done through those times, and then maybe some things that people just really didn't do very well during those times. Just some big, big learning points that you uh, would be willing to share. And I think I'll cover some in the book, but I'd love for you for, for you to share some of those here for us. Yeah, um, I think that uh, you know, one, one, there were some industries that adapted very well. And, and some that that, that were, were able to right and uh, you know we we saw at least in our space and uh, you know the numbers are, are are very big you know it's we don't see it because we're always hammered with the information and we're like the frog in the you know the, the, the water that's warming up but we're going to see so many sectors that will just disappear in the coming years you know they got pumped in with all the ppp money which was artificially these were already businesses that were not going to make the transition into the digital age uh you, we talked about it all was already happening it was coming but it was going to take 10 years you know to answer your question you know before 
uh, you know, the, the this period that just happened uh, just just made it you know, force people to, to make the decisions they had to make to transition to the digital age. And uh, we're going to start seeing the numbers are you know, about forty percent of what we know and business owners we know and industries we know are just going to be completely changed uh, and going to disappear. You know, and uh, and uh, that it'll be something more for the historians to, to to talk about, or maybe in hindsight, everything is twenty twenty, right? And uh, so, if we have this conversation right now, it's still nebulous what's what it's going to be. It's not easy to explain, but there's just so much that we're noticing. The buyers, you know, not interested in in things that have to do with uh, you know physical uh, transportation, labor. You know, they're getting into robotics and things like that. Nobody wants to deal with employees and the hassle that it's become. Uh, and uh, you know, that's where the big investments are going. So, who's going to get you know once there's all this unemployment? You know, how, how are people going to work and, and things like that that we talk about? And it's more about the experts that know about these topics, where you can dive deep in. We're going to see it you know, in the next year or two. We're just going to see all those changes in the economy. They're, they're, they're going to be big. The rise in interest rates and the looming recession that they're talking about the next year is going to, and, and there's not going to be any more chance to inject any more PPP. And you know, there's no more. We never know, right? They can always print out more money because uh, they just keep on doing it, right? But I don't think they, I think it would be impossible to keep artificially keeping the economy going. So there's going to be, the famous big reset, and then there's the conspiracy theories, but I don't think it's going to go all the way to that new world order and those things, but there will be a lot of stuff, and we see it all the time, as we talk with, in this business, it's, you know, when you're working on your company, your business, you've got to focus on the things that you're doing, but then when you get to see all these different transactions and talk to so many different people that are very, very smart, way smarter than you, and you're like trying to keep up on those phone calls with the buyers and, you know, all the financials and things like that, to, you know, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. They're some of the smartest people uh, in finance, right? And uh, you really get to learn and see a lot of things, but there's gonna be big changes. We can't see them, even though it was so clear with the pandemic, but everybody was chasing their tails, trying to figure it out that it's gonna happen now in the next year, two years, we're really gonna go see back and see all the, you know, the new economy and how it's gonna you know, function. Does that make sense? Yeah, it did. I, a couple, there's a couple things that I heard. Uh, I heard a prediction yeah. for a recession next year. I heard you say that. <laughs> we won't. We won't go down that road. I don't want to do that right now. But, yeah. but there's a. There's also something you said that I got a little bit of a. I don't know if I agree or disagree because of what I've seen the last 10, 12 years. And that is that the government can't pour more money into something. And like you said, just print it. Um, I, I We had a conversation with uh, Chris Hearn, his organization, uh, Fountainhead. They do small business loans. And I think at the time we interviewed him, we'll include a link down in the notes if anyone wants to refer to it. His organization had done a thousand PPP loans for organizations, and we had a, we had a conversation because he he's one that I would say that is on more the conservative side that uh, isn't really for the government doing more than they need to, which that's kind of the way I think. And I, I guess I just wonder from your standpoint because y'all are really in the what I would call that banking and finance arena, and this is a little bit of a yeah, I don't think it's conspiracy. I love me a good conspiracy theory every once in a while, just so you know. But do you think, looking back, that all of that money that poured out, because I remember when I remember in March of 2020, I was looking around at the landscape and I said to myself, 30% of the businesses and organizations that exist are going to be gone in you know 12 months, 18 months. But then I've looked around and I've gone, wow, they're there's some of them still hanging around and Nobody's I know gone. the numbers, the numbers are a little fuzzy right now, but I think what, what I'm hearing you say is probably long-term that could be right because they can't even sustain after they've gotten. Yeah. So, so what are your thoughts about, to me, it makes it very difficult to predict when we've got government wanting to help too much, but then also I know that that might have kept us going for a while. What are your thoughts on that? I don't want to get super political. I guess I'm okay doing that. But what what are your thoughts about all of that money and what it's going to mean for us longer term? Uh, you know, the debt and everything, but the U.S. has all, you know, half of the debt of the world or something. I, I just, I, I get on, I watch the videos and all this stuff. And I, I can't keep up and I'm in that world, you know, you know, 
debt and equity and the M&A and everything. It's just that the numbers are unbelievable. It's, um, I contrast it to the experience I've had in, in my life. And uh, I, I grew up a good portion of my life in Latin America uh, as a younger man. And uh, those, those countries did not have the coffers for PPP loans. They, they had some, everybody was trying to copy the U.S. And uh, they, they had some, uh, I was just in Guatemala you know, for, for Easter. I, I grew up there a good, good chunk of my life. And uh, it's, it's one of the most, uh, it's actually the only place in the world that has a, a, a real Holy Week, Semana Santa tradition. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, you know, the, the, the big carpets, the sawdust colored and all the processions. Every day it sends it's thousands of people that uh, you know, carry the, uh, you know, the, the, the different uh, auras are called in, in Spanish, but they would be the Tona floats. I, I don't know the word for a, a procession float, you know, with, with, uh, depictions of the Bible and things like that. But uh, that country was, uh, I was back there for, for, uh, for Easter and got to see that, which is an amazing experience. If anybody ever wants to have that experience, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. But uh, it's, it's unique worldwide. In, in the entire planet, there's nothing like that uh, for Easter week. Uh, Guatemala had its own flavor of the PPP. And I remember, you know, it was like, you could go through like, a thousand steps as a small business owner to get something like, you know, $500 a month for about six months to help you, you know, sustain yourself through, you know, and make payroll and things like that. And it was, you know, nobody got the money. It was probably stolen by, you know, the government officials because they, they did get loans, you know, from the world bank or whatever to you know, help you know, distribute those, those monies. And uh, so nobody got any money in, in these, poorer countries and and yet their economies are were just as affected or less severely than, than the US, you know, and they're less in debt than the States is and the European countries. So it's like, yeah, they shouldn't really intervene. They should let the, the free market just do what it had to do because these 30% of companies, you know it well. It's the third week calculated Briggs, it's you know, Rod Mike Barthory it's 40% of businesses are going to disappear. They just got injected with all this and it's going to happen in next year with the recession that can't be it cannot be artificially sustained by, you know, with the Federal Reserve intervention anymore or anything like that. We just can't. It's been 15 years of free money, you know, 0% years, 0% interest rates. It just can't happen, you know, any longer. So they're raising them and it's, it's going to be painful. It has to be finally. So, yeah, there's no need for the government intervention. It's just to gain, you know, re-election. You know, the, the current current party in power wants to stay in power. That's what always what is, happens. What it- does it mean anything, Stuart, for the, let's just go real, let's go, we just went macro, let's go super micro for the business owner that still has their head down, they they may be working towards an exit or, you know, trying to do something to do, uh, you know, something with their business eventually, but they're just going at it and and they see all this that's going on. And like you said, you're in the industry, <laughs> And you, and you struggle to grasp the level of debt, the level of printing of money and things like that. What would you advise just local business, male or female, guy or gal, to do in response to inflation and all this going on? Or just keep going at it? What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts there? You talk to business owners, they don't even pay attention to any of that. They just keep working hard. You know? that, that, that's the thing. That's the thing. You know, they, they put their visors on. And that's the nature of, uh, of these human beings that have that particular knack. And I think more human beings have the knack for that. But the since the world wars, the type of economy that was created with more stability, social safety net, which didn't exist before, you know, back, you know, before 1900 and the First World War uh, has hampered the desire or the, uh, you know, having the guts to go out and do it on, on your own, but, but there's more people that could do it. And those are the ones that sustain the economy because you can have everybody fighting on the, mi- on the macro about that and about everything. And then on the micro, you have the dynamics of price and price elasticity, supply and demand, you know, microeconomics. But there's a thing called mesoeconomics in the middle, which nothing applies from macro or micro. It's, it's really the business owners that are just hacking. It. You know, they're just working away and surviving and they're keeping, you know, they're the ones who generate what is it again? You know, small, medium-sized enterprises generate 80% of employment in any economy in the world. It's not the corporations and it's not the micro or solo entrepreneurs. It's the ones in the middle. Uh, 
like the middle class sustains. That's where you know nobody ever covers the middle. We talked about at the beginning, right? Only the, the good, the bad. Uh, but yeah, they don't pay attention to that. They they just keep working, and they say, I don't have time to deal with whatever you know Biden said or whatever you know. Uh, they, they they just don't even pay attention to it. You know, they're just hard working and figuring it out. Yeah, that was interesting in reading. I think you referenced it in the book that Miso. Um, I did because I've I've talked about micro and macro. Did you make that up, or is that a term that's been I around? I didn't, and I wish back in UT UT Austin in two thousand one. I would have, you know, you, didn't, you only had email back then, right? Uh, and uh, cell phones kept changing. There wasn't any WhatsApp. There wasn't a lot. Did you read that part of the book where I talk about internationally, how you can reconnect with people and find them? But I, I could never, I'll try again. I haven't done it since I since I wrote the book uh, about a year ago now. Well, I was pounding away trying to write it, but Dr. Ping Chen, he came from, University in Beijing, and he gave a talk at UT, and he talked about the Miso economy. He had all the data about how the, the you know, nobody pays attention. Then, then I learned of a author that had an essay called "The Forgotten Man," and the CPA told me about that essay. And I was young, you know, your brain was fresh with uh, absorbing stuff. And the Forgotten Man is an essay from a hundred more than hundred years ago, I think, at this, you know, to this date about well, there's a, an elite trying to supposedly figure out how to solve or fix or help uh you know a is trying to help c but they forget about b which is the one that's never bothering anybody never asking for any handouts never causing you know committing crime never you know and everybody the, the laws are made for the ones that are the bad apples when everybody else will never commit the, you know, the forgotten man i've always wanted to bring that whole miso thing where it's where everything is is chaotic and unmeasurable, and it's just life and the world and nature, human nature, and, and even uh, uh, you know nature. Because he studied, he said the same thing that happens in the miso economy is what happens with bees at the at the beehive level. And then he, he had these charts; it was unbelievable, you know. And that's where I first learned of it. I've never seen more coverage of it. You Google it, the miso economy, nothing. I don't know if he's still around, but uh, yeah, if anybody's listening and wants to. Call me about it. I'd love to, to restart that. You know, the, the thing that I really like about it is yeah. it's kind of like you said just then uh, with our media and all that goes on in our world. We talk about extremes. We never talk about uh, this is kind of developing a trend here with our with our conversation here is talking about the people that are just doing the work in the middle, the people that probably aren't screaming loud or, uh, you, you know, they're, they're just getting things done and they're carrying. Um, I actually had a picture of Atlas Shrugged on, you know, that came to my head of, you know, they're just carrying like the world economy because my wife and I've had these discussions about all these groups of people that have just checked out of work. They've checked out of doing things, but there are people that are still carrying things. I love that miso. So I'm going to, I'm going to be using that. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk more about that. Maybe we can help to get the word out on it. I want to come back to the book uh, as we wrap up towards the end here. But Stuart, there's a few things that just really jumped out at me when I was looking at, you know, I looked at you on LinkedIn and you've got like 30 or so um, items there. Almost all of them have business development or something like that attached to them. Plus, I know you've lived in different cultures and bilingual and you've done business in different parts of the world. Tell me how, let's go back a little bit. Give me your background kind of growing up, maybe parents or whatever your, you know, what influenced you and kind of how you, you got started in this world of business and entrepreneurship. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, trilingual. I speak Portuguese also. I wanted to learn more language. I just couldn't. I, I wanted to learn Chinese. I said it when I was starting college. I said, I got to get into Chinese classes because the Chinese are going to be huge. And and I, I just didn't do it. But I, I speak Portuguese. And I lived in Brazil. I was very lucky. Uh, uh, the, the, the reason I got to travel so much as a kid was uh, my dad. He... Uh, he worked for Wang Computers out of Boston, Bill Arica. You remember Wang? Okay. And he was a programmer. You know, Wang did a, Wang had buildings in major cities in the U.S. where you now have, you know, Bank of America or whatnot. You know, they had the Wang logo. That, that's how big that company was. And it just, you know, disappeared uh, like a lot of businesses, right? They have their glory and they have to exit. But 
he was programming and he had to program for banks, actually uh, software, you know, banking software uh, all through the eighties. And that's why I lived in, you know, Argentina, Panama, Boston, Miami, Guatemala. Uh, so, so that allowed me, I had to switch schools uh, as a little kid, you know, pre-K, kinder, first grade, second grade, all those grades, you know, and, uh, you know, when, when you're a kid, you're not, it's really easy to make friends and you just go and you talk to people. So that, but, but if you get switched around, because you quickly make your friends and you create your two, two or three little buddies at that age and you, you remain like that. But I think that the business development portion that I ended up doing in my life was because of having to make those new little friends when they had already created their little groups of little friends, because I would jump in in the middle of the year. Does that make sense? So I would have to go talk to people that are already had a little I think that allowed me to go talk to people and become a salesman. <laughs> and, and, you know, the business development thing is really sales, right? That's what it is. So I've always been like a sales agent for, for, for organizations, uh, either as a business owner, I'm the one who gets handed the selling, or I did a lot of bringing companies from Latin America into the U.S. market and from the U.S. market into Latin America and Brazil. That's why I cover Latin America in the book, but from the entrepreneur angle and how they can really make money in that market you know the u.s entrepreneur going into that anyhow yeah anyhow yeah it wasn't always business development on linkedin i had to really change that as i one day did a a redraw of linkedin i think you did the same thing on yours because uh coach didn't exist until maybe 10 years ago it was consultant right and you got you got your coach back in the 90s you know for a few organizations so i know that you added coach consultant to a couple of your titles because you know, it makes more sense. And it, and, it, and it gets confusing for people because I get these messages that, Oh, you're a life coach. I'm going not. Yeah. I mean, sure. I'll talk to somebody about life stuff, but I'm a strategic guy. I like strategy and stuff like that. And anyway, it's, it's kind of tough when we have to pigeonhole ourselves. There was something you brought up though. And I think I read some of this in the book also, you talked about the generation. I think it's the Xennials. I believe you you might have titled it. I don't know if that's correct, but Xennials. Anyway, Xennials. Yeah, yeah. X. Anyway, um, and I believe I saw that you were born the year I graduated from high school. So that kind of puts us in, in some interesting things. I think I, I saw 1982 is when you were born. But um, but you you just said something that is very powerful about communication. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the point you brought up, I'll let you go into it a little bit more in the book is the value of the generation that remembers pre-digital, but can function in the digital. And I don't know if I word that exactly, if exactly right, but uh, I'm seeing some real hybrids right now too. And it's, and it's really uncomfortable for some people that can't function in one or the other. So talk more about that and the value of that in that probably is business development is probably coaching is just the ability to communicate maybe across wide ranges. Maybe, I don't know. Tell us more about that. Yeah, there's two, there's two things about this, this demographic. It's, it's a really valuable demographic, not to mention, but because I'm in it, I realize it. And because I talk to the folks that are around my age and we have the same funny conversations about, how it was growing up and how it is now, how our parents have had such a hard time with getting on their phones and learning about everything, the technology, and how easy it is for the kids right now to just, they're born with a phone in their hands, but they can't do the basic stuff that's like composing an email, right? And they think email is dumb or, or whatnot. I got all these companies that I work with, some, some of my clients, and they, they, they put me on these Slack channels. And I, I, I use Slack a thousand times. like, can we do this on the email thread? Why are you copying the email thread you got and saying, I got this email and you want to chat about it on the, on the Slack, you know, and the, but they're younger, they're, they're much younger. So the, the Xennials are between the millennials and the Gen Zers, I even forget, but it's the ones born like between middle of the seventies and middle of the eighties. And they had all the, it's really easy to, to measure. It's, they, they, they grew up with analog technologies, tape, magnetic. And then you know Walkman, and then they morphed into CD and mini disc, and you know later on Spotify and streaming all that stuff. But uh, but that's really that generation, and they still had the values that you had to respect your elders very strongly. You know, you still get slapped uh, for that. I think that stopped with all the helicopter. It's so bad right now, the helicopter parenting and everything. And then the the whole anti-bullying. I'm, I'm happy that 
there's anti-bully because bullies can be pretty bad, but there's now no bullies. Bullies really form your character. Anyways, we're getting into another topic, but. Yeah, we have to be be careful of that. Be careful of that one. That one may be by getting outside of our scope here, but I'm with (laughs) that. (laughs) But we're that generation. It's really weird demographically and and then with the technology-wise. So we're able to to work with older folks. We're able to work with the younger folks, although it gets harder every time when I talk to recent college students, when they reach out to me, you know, because they can find me on LinkedIn through my old, uh, you know, uh, alumni organizations that I, you know, I'm an alumni of. Isaac and these international ones, they're always contacting me. Sometimes I'm having a harder time for them getting what I'm trying to tell them. You know, it's kind of weird, you know, because I feel like the old guy. <laughs> and now, come on now, I can't. <laughs> Be careful <laughs> talking about the old guy. We like to call it maturity and wisdom. We like to use mature versus old. So you could start using that if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, definitely. No, I got to start using it. I turned forty this year. Got my first gray hair last week. I had always <laughs> my first one, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, the Zennials. Uh, if you look at them and you, you Google them, they're very valuable for organizations because it can be like, okay, you're a Zennial. You're gonna have to do these special tasks that are cross lateral, uh, you know, diagonal, and, and like the special projects. They're gonna have, for a weird reason or another, they're gonna have a really ample view. They're gonna be very strategic about things. Even if they were never taught about strategy or anything, you want to plug some of those in. And all they got to have is the years that they were born in, you know, between around the mid 70s, mid 80s. You're going to see interesting stuff if you pay attention to, to those folks. They're just weird like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, I, when you brought it up, I wanted to drill down a, a little bit more on that because it, uh, you know, we, we we actually discuss it quite a bit here at Seco Create, just generational differences. And many times it's antagonistic and there's conflict, but I think there's also value. I mean, I'm, I'm one of these guys, too, that I walk by a group of, you know, generation that's younger than me and I see them out like there's three or four people and they're all on their phones. I'm going, why aren't they talking to each other? You know, I don't quite grasp that. But yet there's there's still value at looking at how people do business. And we all do need to 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 kind of work together. It kind of brings up something about your background that fascinates me that I learned when we started traveling. And that is the value of experiencing different cultures. And and I'd love for you to talk because you moved around. You've I think I read you did business. You, I love what you shared earlier about Holy Week in Guatemala, because, you know, if we look here in the U.S., it's become, you know, Easter eggs and the Easter bunny and everybody dresses up and goes to church. And that's the only a uh, little bit cynical sound in there. But I think you know what I mean. Um, talk about the value for Stuart in all that you're doing now in experiencing different cultures because i think we can get very narrow but just doing one thing over and over or living in one place geographically talk to us about the value of that about the different experiences you've had culturally yeah i people ask me that and i I've never i should really put it in you know in, in, in writing like a, now that i write <laughs> but it's 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 been so second nature for so long but Whenever anybody complains or tries to think, oh, because they're different or whatnot, I'm, I just, it's just second nature to me. And I kind of just laugh it off is everybody is the same everywhere. You know, there's no differences. You know, there's going to be the stuff that was influenced by the religions that they were brought up with, or, you know, the, the, the climate, the weather, you know, sometimes it makes people a certain way. Uh, it really does. And, but, but in the end, there's no difference almost between the cultures and uh so but you gotta you gotta be you gotta see the other culture go to another culture and be immersed in it for six months enough for you to see that 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 everybody's the same in that other culture you're gonna have your jerks you're gonna have your nice people you're gonna have your your hard workers the ones that are trying to take over the ones that are just being passive uh, the ones that are haters right there's that word today nowadays right there's always haters will always hate right and uh there's so, you know, back in the day, I used to promote a lot. And that's one of the alumni organizations that always reaches out, the alumni, the, the, the current members of that. It's, it's Isaac, and they do an exchange program where they send you to work, a traineeship exchange program. And uh, 
In the US, they bring people in under J1 visas, but there's an equivalent in almost every country in the world. This organization has you know, 150 countries where they exchange uh, trainees, interns, basically, to work at companies, but then study abroad at universities, uh, study abroad when you're in high school, that, that, that one year where you can do it in another country. And there's a lot of, I encourage that, that so much to anybody to have, have them send their kids, even as an adult, just, just do the plunge. You went to Australia and New Zealand. I've never been there. I've been everywhere. I still, to this state, haven't been to Australia. So I'm, I'm jealous that you've been there. You're going to have to give me tips because I'm planning to go. Uh, but uh, that's been one part of the world where I haven't gone yet. But yeah, I, I encourage everybody, if they've never been uh, outside of their country, they, they should do it for a year. They just, just go for one year on anything. It, it will make the whole difference for how you look at life, how you look at problems, how you look at the conflicts that are happening in the world, you know, the wars and everything. You're just like, it's probably people that have never been, you know, in another country, you know, immersed. I mean, it's so simple. I think one thing I like about what you just said, Stuart, is very powerful. And you said it quick, but you said to spend at least six months there. Because to me, especially America, we, we can talk about folks in America, they'll do like a one week in Europe or they'll go 10 days to Australia. You're, you're just a tourist then and 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 listen it's good to see things i'm not saying don't do that but it was really different to go spend three months on the south island of new zealand living in a home there and going out to local restaurants and seeing the damage from the earthquake that had occurred you know four years before and talking to people and you know going to a worship service when you could and different things i i, I think it's just different when you get in the mode of living places versus just visiting as a tourist. Um, and we've noticed that as we traveled, you know, North America in, in the RV, you know, people say, oh, you're on vacation all the time. Like we were talking about earlier, being a nomad, you're just goofing off all the time. It's like, we really actually don't do vacation. Yeah. We just go hang out in cool places and we do our work and then we go, uh, you know, like right now we're talking about this weekend going over to the Black Hills. We're up in South Dakota. And so, you know, we may go over to the Badlands or somewhere like that. We're just talking about that. And I, I think that is so valuable because that's how you really get the culture. So I wanted to emphasize that that real nugget you gave six months or more. Try to try to be able to do that. I, I want to ask, you know, we really talk about success here in a little bit different way than a lot of people do, Stuart. We really, we use this word, I don't think everybody understands it, we redefine success. I think a lot of people just look at success and they try to duplicate what others do, but we really attempt to define it for ourselves and then redefine success that way. And as we wrap up, I'm going to talk about how, I'm going to ask you about how y'all do that with your company and what you wanted to do it with, uh, what you wanted to do with the book related to that. But I first want to ask about your experiences. I mean, again, I, I think I counted 30 plus positions. I would like to hear just an example of one of those roles that made a huge impact from a positive that people might look at and go, wow, that was a home run. You hit it out of the park, exit, money, whatever. And then I would like to hear one that we might say it was not a success, but it taught you something. You learn, I think we learn more sometimes when quote unquote failure. I don't like, I don't like to talk about failure that much, but can you give us two extremes of Stuart's background, something that was like, wow, he was awesome. Look at him. And then like, Ooh, that didn't look so good, but maybe you got some cool stuff from it because of the experience. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the good was, you know, what got me into where I am today at Briggs, which is, I've, I've never been, you know, happier doing what I do. Cause I get to do all these interesting things. I have the, there's good money, but there's never a dull, a dull moment. Uh, but uh, the what allowed me to get into Briggs, because Briggs only allows you to become a partner if you were a business owner and you went through an exit. And most of us, the requirement is you had no idea what the heck you were doing and you did it wrong and you didn't advise and you thought you could do it because you're so smart and you left money on the table and you got you got a, a backstab by the, by the buyer to get paid your earnout. Or your, you know, future payments. So it happened twice to me when I sold two, two businesses. But uh, but the, the but that was the success of exiting, even though it wasn't sexy, uh, allowed me to get into Briggs one. And, and and the more interesting one was the call center company, 
because we, when I, when I got into that company on a business development role, years old, uh, the guys were 40 people, you know, there were 40, uh, 40 agents doing telemarketing, you know, you kill what you eat, try, you know, you, know, you don't get paid if you don't perform selling direct TV, selling all that, you know, really, really tough telemarketing. The, the, the folks that you hate calling you on the phone, selling you stuff, that's what, that's what most of these companies, that's how they get started. And they all want to evolve and survive and become customer support inbound uh, workers and companies. But when it was 40 people and in four years after uh, I entered uh, and joined, uh, we were 950 people. So it was, it was a massive explosion of growth in terms of employees. Uh, it was a, it was a university. And so it was a four year college, you know, learning about everything in terms of that world where the entrepreneur has no time to even look at the news and what's going on in the world. You're just solving, you know, the next, you know, the, the furniture you need to buy to sit more people down as the company keeps growing, hiring people, putting ads on the paper, dealing with lawsuits from a disgruntled employee. He's got 950 of them, right? Uh, the bank, you owe so much on the bank, you know, our leverage or bank leverage, so high, we were every day a minute from going bankrupt. If the, if anything went wrong, if any anything fell from where we were getting our revenue, we would we would not be able to make our you know pay our our loans. And uh, so that's an interesting learning experience, and it was a, it was a great exit. In the end, you know, I exited wasn't as much in terms of monetary value, but it did allow me to get into breaks, uh, which which is great. And two one bad experience, two bad experiences actually. Um, the, I, I had a really good idea for a startup and we, we, we got funded, uh, and, uh, you know, the, my, my co-founder who was in China, he, I did all my part, which was getting the clients and getting everything set up and getting the funding. And then he, which happens with people all the time and people will be people. He just disappeared and never answered the phone again for like six months and never did his part, which was the part of overlaying and pre-installing apps onto tablets. I'm talking 10 years ago when tablets were starting to be the new thing. And, uh, you know, that's when Zuckerberg famously said, a tablet is not a phone. And everyone's like, what? You know, and, and, uh, everybody thought tablets were big phone. Anyway, so it was a big, big shift in, in, in the market then. And uh, he had the relationships. He had been living in China for many years. He disappeared. And I had to go tell everybody that we weren't going to be able to deliver them on the product we offered and uh, asked for payments to give them their money back. A lot of clients prepaid because they believed in the idea and everything. And it took a long time to pay people back. One of our biggest supporters was a gigantic company out in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley in Brazil. Uh, great guys. They were back in the day where Movile was the name of it. And now they've, they've changed it to another name because they've just become gigantic. They, they have a conglomerate called iFood in Brazil and companies in the U.S. But, but they, you know, after like, you know, the sixth payment of maybe 12 or 15, uh, they said, you don't have to pay us anymore. They just, they really, you know, they saw that I was paying back and, and, you know, showing up and trying to see what I could do. And then they just said, you don't have to pay anymore. And the same thing happened at Site Selection Magazine, you know, and, and, and uh, Adam, rest in peace, he, he passed away uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but he also, you know, I, I I got prepaid on the commissions. I was an, just an outsourced salesperson there for Latin America. Couldn't get couldn't get a lot of sales to happen. It was one of the worst. You remember we were talking before the recording about high school days calling girls, getting hang up. That <laughs> was a the worst time of selling people hanging up and not not, not buying. Yeah, it was worse than, than high school. Uh, and I ended up you know going really deep into you know about four months or five months into this model that they had, which I later on implemented in the companies where I, where I grew or where you prepay the freelance salespeople, their base with the idea that they're going to pay it back with a commission. And I had never really experienced that. It was very early in my career. And I've seen that people, when you propose it to them, they had never really seen that model before and they like it if they're very aggressive salespeople, but yeah, I couldn't get any sales done. And then I had to, I got fired from the prepayments or being a rep and uh, I had to start paying back as part of the contract. And uh, after like the third or fourth payment, where I, you know, they said you don't have to keep us keep paying us back anymore. So I've forgiven a lot of uh, a lot of those debts to people when I see that they're. But you know what the thing is? Uh, whenever somebody starts paying back, I forgive them after the second or third. But most people 
Then they, they, they never honor the contract. They don't pay you back. They don't pay anything back. And uh, people are like that. You know? And that's what you end up learning about folks. It doesn't matter whatever you sign. You're not going to go sue somebody, you know, for 10000 50000 It's more expensive to use the lawyers, you know. And, uh, you know, these, these contracts are usually for that amount. Yeah, and all those experiences, I think, uh, we can learn from them. I love hearing, you know, what people got from it. I also believe that with what you do at Briggs, you guys see a lot of, uh, I guess, success, we'll call it. We'll use that word again. Um, I know that in the book, y'all talk about the success rate because people come to you for a specific reason. They're looking to exit or acquire or something like that. Um, and so you may not see all of business as a whole, but you do see people that are moving towards something, either an acquisition or an exit. I, I, I think one of the things is probably going to be one of my last questions, except for a couple other things I want to ask. But I really am curious what you and your partners there at Briggs see as some of the common characteristics of successful people that are moving towards exits or moving towards uh, being acquired. And uh, because, uh, you know, we could, we could talk about a lot of things that people do wrong, but my guess is, is that y'all see a characteristic or trait that is fairly common across all of the ones that do well. What would that one thing or those few things be that just seem to be in everybody that does well? The number one, the ones who do well are the ones who already did a transaction once and it wasn't sexy, but they got to learn. They got on the other side. The world to them is so different. Your vision as a business owner as, as an entrepreneur changes so dramatically and once you're done with the transaction you say that's what Briggs did for me or that's what the big deal was with the private equity guys and the lawyers and the, it, 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 it is not a big deal it's not a it's not a science what you do to, to help the company you know go through the exit but it's really nebulous and it's really you know it's, it's another language it's another it's like looking at the matrix, you know, when Neo looks at the matrix first and he can't see anything and then he can just read the code. That's the difference. And it happens if you do the transaction. You're like, turn around, like, oh my God. And then that's where they get into this mentality where they can build businesses, grow them, sell them, do it again. We've got only about a handful, maybe 10 over the years, because, you know, people have aged out of the process. But Rod's had about 10 of those. I have one right now where they're coming back to us and they're looking at us structuring the fundraising or things like that after the exit. And let's go at it again, you know, and guys, you know, be on the board and things like that. And we love that. That's what we, that's the biggest success for us is just, let's just follow the entrepreneur along their journey of building another company, selling it again, building another one, selling it again. And, and that's really what I try to convince. It's so hard to convince a business owner to sell their company for the first time. All the time we're pitching to them and telling them they're, they get cold feet. They they don't know what they're going to do after they sell it. They want more money than it's really worth, uh, you know, for the market price. The second time they sell, they just sell it for whatever the the multiple is. You know, they're like, just give me the multiple that's out there with the comparables. Let's go. I don't want to ask for. And then they go on to the next one. It's unbelievable to see the difference between a first time seller and uh, a seller that that sold multiple times. So, so that's really the success. The book tries to do that. It just you just when I this world of deal making. I read, I, read, I read 20 books, 25 books that people recommended. You read the whole book, you end up close the book, and you're like, I didn't learn anything about actually how do I now start and do this? You know, how do I even get started? So because of that experience, I really try to make it very pragmatic. And you're, you're halfway through, you've seen how down to earth, and we talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, the actual steps that go, you know, what, what to do first, the type of letter, and we got templates for the letters you write, either if you're going to buy a business or approach it to buy it, or if you're going to sell your business, we, we, we run the full gamut. We try to really make it into a manual where you don't have to call Briggs or anybody to actually read this. And it really will be a differentiator in terms of what you knew before and what you will know after about transactions and about this world that we live in, uh, that, that I operated. And we really try to do that. It really doesn't uh, call to action to get called and things like that. We, you know, we, we've gotten calls and of course we do the book to try to, you know, 
survive as an entity and get more business. But, you know, in a sense, it's really a one-time you know, book for, we want just people to read it. Uh, I, mean, I wish I would have been given the book by myself, like Marty McFly, not like Biff, you know, gave it to Biff, and, and a young Biff. And so, you know, read this thing, you know, 20 years ago, whatever. Uh, but but yeah. that's what... I love that. I think the experience factor that you just brought up is so good. And one of the things I loved in the book, and I got through a lot of them, is y'all just throw in case studies throughout. And then even in the index, you have a list of all the case studies. I would have enjoyed, I mean, all of it was great, but I would have enjoyed just reading all the case studies. You know, had I just gone through and just bam, 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 read all those. Because I do agree, learning from experience, our own but it's a little less expensive when we can learn from others. That's actually really good. And I think you guys do a great job of it. The book is new world of entrepreneurship. Who do you think it's for and who would, who would you really like to get this book? I mean, give us a description of the, of the readers, probably people listening in, but, but give a little bit more on who should get the book. It, it, it's good for established business owners. They've been at the business for 10 years. They've always thought, you know, what if, uh, what if I could sell? What if I could participate in those things I read in the news about selling your company and going on into the glory of entrepreneurship and being at the table where you where you sold and uh, you know you can do it again and participate in rounds in the future for other companies and things that become an angel investor. All that's anybody who's ever had that little thing of, that, that they've had the visors on forever and they're doing well, you know, in their business. They're generating cash. They're making more than most people. Uh, that's the one that will take away a lot of those fears and doubts and questions that they have about what happens or how do I go about selling my business. And uh, then to the would-be entrepreneur, and that's really how we were lucky to get on your radar screen on the podcast was, uh, you know, with the whole great resignation when we sent the pitch over, because you're so famous, I saw already, you know, you bumped <laughs> out into like six months of the, we sent the pitch like in, in December. And it was about the great resignation. That was the big buzzword at the time. That a lot of people were jumping ship, not necessarily to go work for somebody else that was offering more, more salary, but to just uh, become their own, their own uh, business owner, right? Become their own, uh, carve their own destiny and, and, and implement the business idea they've had for a long time. The book was not meant for that because it was really meant for the business of buying and selling and established companies. But really, after we saw the last you know, the things that happened in the last two years. It's a good primer for anybody thinking of getting into the world because now the world of the entrepreneur is it can be about buying, selling, doing deals quicker because of the digital age. You can do the transactions so much faster than, than before. We're doing things that used to take nine months, three months. It's ridiculous how quickly some of these transactions happen. We still have the nine-month transactions, which is the usual time frame from beginning to end. But things have happened within three months, which is unbelievable, unheard of in the space. So, yeah, no. Very good. Yeah. And I do recommend people get, I enjoyed it. I thought it's just good business information. I mean, there's just like great examples and, and, and information. The case studies are examples of real life. We just have to change the names, you know? Yeah. 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 And not only that, but you, I mean, at the beginning, you give some great resources with websites and also uh, the terminology that you go over that, uh, that I, I was pretty familiar with. I'll tell you what, a lot of it was actually very valuable for me because it kind of clarified. But, you know, if someone's just interested in learning more about business, I think that there's value there. Stuart, where, if someone wants to connect with you or get the book or just get, get in touch with you, where do you want them to go? We'll include it down in the notes, but where would you like to tell them to go? Uh, I was one of, you know, I've been on LinkedIn since the beginning. So we have Stuart Robles on LinkedIn, Stuart S-T-U-A, right? It says on the on the Zoom or the Bricks Capital website. I'll I'll respond to the email also uh, very quickly. I'm always I've been a nomad forever, so I've I've got all the and you, have, you know I have a chapter in the book about all the social, the Telegram, the Signal, the WhatsApp, the you know, like everything. Uh, so I'll, I'll respond on any of the channels that I get contacted through. Um, the email is Stuart at BriggsCapital.com. Um, yeah. I'd love to connect with anybody that's listening. Um, do the miso thing with you. You know, we got to reconnect after that. We'll look into that for sure. I've always, it's been 20, 21 years since I first started that. And I was just blown away by it. So maybe we can. Sure. But yeah. And the book, uh, 
And the book's available wherever people get books, I guess. They can go get it there. We'll include links, but they can go get it there. You know, we've got it on Amazon, and then we do also direct shipping from our website. The, the book has a website. Uh, it's it's the, the five letters of the title. So The New World of Entrepreneurship, T-N-W-O-E, The New World of Entrepreneurship.com. And uh, we'd appreciate a direct sale, but, you know, Amazon is the easiest to just do one flake or do the Kindle or things like that. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. Um, happy sure. to sign the book if I'm ever in the area, you know, of a reader that we've had that happen on occasion, you know, and, and we stop by or we meet for coffee at a Starbucks if I'm you know, somewhere. And, uh, and uh, you know, we'll talk with whoever, you know, like the book. We're always available on the phone also. That's good, Stuart. I do want to tell you that just because someone has been seen, they're not famous. I'm just a guy that lives in an RV. So don't, you've used the word famous twice. I'm going, what? Who's he talking about? I'm going, man, I'm just a homeless dude traveling the world in the RV and living the life. Anyway, Stuart, we are seek, go, create those three words. I'm going to give you one of those words to choose that resonates or means more to you right now. Seek, go, or create. Which one? That's my final question. You know, if you would have asked me this at the beginning, it was uh, of, of our, of our, of our, you know, talk. It was a go, right? Because I, I got to go and uh, I'm doing this, and there's so much opportunity. I got to help so many entrepreneurs, and that's that's the mode that we've been on at Briggs for the last two years. Because there's just been so much activity in terms of people wanting to do things. Uh, the market flooded with money to buy companies, so that was go. And that was my message, but then it changed into, you know, probably create uh you're giving me ideas of what to seek but, not, but really it's create i like we gotta create the miso the miso thing i think it's, it's that that middle people have to talk more about the middle the bell curve everybody's always on the side it's that little two and a half percent it should be that 87 percent of the middle or whatever it is that, that should be covered Excellent. So I shifted you some during the conversation. Thank you, Stuart. I so appreciate the conversation we've had. Get a copy of the book, folks. Uh, the New World of Entrepreneurship. It fits with so many things. I know we've even got people in ministry and all that. It has value in all areas of someone who's a leader, running organizations, needs to understand uh, things about not just exits. I think it's good value for just business in general. So get a copy of it. And I appreciate you listening in. If you need more info and details about this episode, if you go to seekgocreate.com, we have extensive notes with all the links, everything that we've talked about, the folks that do the transcribing for us. They actually will put links of all the books and they'll try to find all the info on Mesos and other things like that. We'll see how well they do with that. But uh, anyway, I'm so thankful that you listen in. Please share this episode. Until next time, we've got new episodes every Monday, so make sure you listen in and subscribe. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be. 